Today is our second sermon in our series called Future Shock. It's about how external factors in our rapidly changing world affect our mental, emotional, and spiritual health. Last week, Seth talked about technology and how it, um, it's left some of us struggling and that perhaps we have made a world that we were not made to live in. Today, we're going to talk about money. Now, I know you're not really supposed to talk about money in the church, but you'll be glad to know I won't be asking for it because Seth already did. <laughs> but it turns out that Jesus had a whole lot to say about money. In fact, 11 of his 39 par parables were teaching about money. Fully about 40% of what Jesus' teaching was about was wealth and wealth disparity. This parable today is from Luke 16, but in the previous chapter, Luke 15, uh, in response to the Pharisees, the religious leaders who had been criticizing him because he'd been hanging out with so-called sinners, the wrong sort of people, don't you know? In response to that accusation, Jesus told three parables in Luke 15. He told a parable, parable about the lost sheep. He told a parable about the lost coin. And he told a parable about the lost son, the so-called prodigal son. So Luke 16, which we're about to read, is a continuation of that discussion. So he talks about the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And then the next two parables are there was a rich man. And then the parable after this one we're going to read today is there was a rich man. So clearly, Jesus wants to convey a little something to us. Perhaps the reason Jesus told these stories to the Pharisees and to us is because he sensed that the Pharisees didn't value people enough. They wrote them off as sinners, as unclean, not worth our time or our love. Why are you eating with them, Jesus? But Jesus also might have sensed that they loved and valued money a little too much. Perhaps Jesus wants to tell us that God's economy of grace and mercy is very, very different from the world's economy of greed and getting ahead at all costs and the heavy toll that it takes upon us. So Luke 16. A reading from Luke. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do now that my manager is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. 
I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we are thankful to be here this morning with one another and with you. We are thankful for the freedom to be here, for the time, for this hour, for this new day full of potential and promise. We are thankful for your promise that when we gather in your name, you will be in our midst. Now speak the word you have for us today. Silence in us any voice but yours, so that we may hear and believe and trust you, and then live our lives faithfully, joyfully, and courageously through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. There is an internet meme that's been making the rounds among my pastor friends uh, this past week. It points out that 2,000 years from now, people will not understand the difference between a butt dial and a booty call. <laughs> and that is exactly why the Bible is sometimes hard for us to understand. The parable we read today is a bit confounding, too. I mean, surely Jesus isn't telling us we should strive to emulate a dishonest manager, or is he? Let's take a look at the context into which Jesus is telling this story. If you know a little bit about Palestinian economics in the first century, the meaning of the parable might become more clear. 
It starts with the Romans. You've got to remember that the backdrop to the whole of the Gospels is the occupation of Israel-Palestine by, Ro- by the Romans. As occupiers, the Romans would come in and they would do two things. First, they would exploit all the natural resources. And second, they would exploit the labor of the people. They would do this in large part by taxation. I know, I know it's hard for you to wrap your head around that, right? It's hard to imagine a world where rich people get off without paying a lot of taxes and that the poor people pay a disproportionately larger portion. It's hard to imagine, but there you have it. It also helps you to know that uh, the rich people lived in the south of Israel, the state of Judea, where the capital city was and where the religious capital, Jerusalem, was. And the poor people, the farmers and the small fishermen, lived in the north, in Galilee. And so what was happening was the Romans who were occupying this land needed these consumer goods to sustain themselves and to send back to Rome. They needed fish and wine and wheat for bread and olive oil, and they needed it from the poor farmers up in Galilee. Now you would think that that would be a boon to the farmers and fishermen, fishermen, Uh, but of course it was not. That's not how it worked. What happened was that the Romans taxed the small farmers and they couldn't afford to pay their taxes. So their rich neighbors in the south would come in and say, hey, don't worry, I've got a great deal for you. You know what's coming, right? Their rich counterparts in Judea would say, oh, you can't pay your taxes? No problem. We will pay your taxes for you in exchange for the deed to your property. But don't worry, you can live on what is now our property uh, as a tenant farmer. And all you have to do is every year give us a percentage of your wheat or your wine or your olive oil, and we can sell it to the Romans. And so, I know it's hard for you to believe, the system was rigged for the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer. It was a self-perpetuating debt system. And one last detail, when the rich guys in the south wanted to collect their tribute, the crops of the poor farmers up north, they didn't want to go up there themselves. It was a, a long trip, and they didn't have a great relationship with the people up there. It might not have been that they were exploiting. It might not have been very safe. So they would hire a manager, a steward, to do the dirty work of collecting the tribute. To to say, basically, pay up. We need your 20 measures of grain or 30 barrels of wine, your olive oil. So when Jesus says there was a rich man, now you can picture who that is. 
And when he says, who had a manager, now you know who he is. So now in the story, the rich man has been informed that the manager has been squandering his property. To translate, he's not getting a big enough return on his investment. He's just not squeezing those tenants hard enough. And so he calls him in and he threatens to fire him. Well, at this moment, the manager represents probably a lot of us, middle-class folks that are trying to get by, caught in the middle between rich and poor. And at that moment, I think the manager realizes something. He realizes just how expendable he is. He realizes that he does not have any security. There is no loyalty. He's too old to dig ditches, and he doesn't want to beg. He realizes just how expendable he is in the current economic pyramid. And so he decides to switch sides. He decides he has nothing to lose. So he arranges things for the farmers that are more equitable and just. And so now he has friends among the poor. Instead of 100 jugs of olive oil, he changes the bill to 50. Instead of 100 containers of wheat, just 80 will do. He gets a return for his boss, but he does it in a way that is sustainable for the poor people with whom he is dealing. Writer Brian McLaren says, there is a simple way to say what this parable about is about. It's about someone who saw through the injustice of the economic system and decided to switch sides and work for the poor. And so, he writes, Jesus suggests that we learn that you and I, and the Pharisees perhaps, learn that money is not the measure of all things. We would be way better to use our money in the service of relationships rather than to serve relationships in the service of money. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus says. So let us value relationships over resources. Now let's be clear, we all have to use money, our credit cards. <laughs> but let's also be clear that money can often make us improperly value things that are really important in God's economic system. I don't have to tell you that our current economic system is not much different than the one that was rigged by the Romans uh, all those years ago. And we know that poverty causes great harm to people's mental, physical, and spiritual health. When workers can't afford health care, can't afford child care, can't afford housing, can't afford a decent retirement, can't afford to put 
food on their table. Something is broken. You, you guys know the statistics as well as I do. We know that the weekly wages of the American worker, despite the explosion of technology, is lower than it was 50 years ago. Meanwhile, most of all the new wealth and income we have seen over the last 50 years has gone to the top 1%. There are three people in the United States who own more wealth than the bottom half of Americans. And an estimated 60% of families are living paycheck to paycheck. Most of us are one catastrophic illness away from bankruptcy. When I worked at a free counseling center on the south side, I had many clients who were just one car breakdown from losing their job and becoming homeless. People are increasingly needing to decide whether to buy food or medicine. We are buried under an avalanche of debt. Many of our kids will be paying off their student loans for 30 years or more. How many of you are still paying off your student loans? A few of you probably. Uh, they despair, at least my kids do, despair of owning, ever owning their own home. And as you know, the United Auto Workers are striking this week uh, for an uh, increase in wages, that, as their wages have been stagnant for uh, several decades. The CEO of General Motors makes $29 million a year. And the other two CEOs of the large car makers make 25 million and 21 million, respectively. 400 times what their workers do. It's obscene. And frankly, I don't think it's sustainable. Money keeps us in a perpetual state of anxiety, and when we feel squeezed, we often want to squeeze others who are lower than us on the wealth pyramid, or worse, we blame them for their own misfortune. I worry that we are creating a generation of folks who feel hopeless and helpless when they look at their future. I think if the pandemic taught us anything, it taught many folks that lesson that Jesus taught all those years ago, that we need to prioritize relationships over money. You know that old adage, no one ever said on their deathbed, I wish I would have spent more time at the office. Every Sunday when we pray, we say those words Jesus taught us, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Generally, we take the word debt to mean sins or transgressions, moral failings, but the word debt also has its economic and legal connotation too, financial debt. And we know with Jesus, it's hard to untangle money from sin. 
Diana Butler Bass tells the story of preaching a sermon on this very topic on debt and practically shouting, Jesus dreamt of a debt-free world. And the group of college students in the sanctuary came up to her afterward and they said, did Jesus really say that? Why haven't we heard about this before? And one said, you know what? That's what we're dreaming about, too. Friends, we all participate in this economy that the world hands us. And we find ourselves enmeshed in unjust systems and are not, that are not sustainable for our health and for the health of our planet. But there is, I think, another way. I think Jesus was telling us in his little parable that there is another way, that God's economic system is different from the world's, that there is enough for everyone if we work for equity and justice for all. I'll leave you with a little parable a pastor friend of mine shared this week, uh, Marianne McKibben Dana. She uh, wrote that she had been putting out this little hummingbird feeder in her backyard. And uh, this month, the hummingbirds were just flocking up to fuel up for the long, miraculous migration that they will be taking to Mexico or Central America. So the feeder has been busier than ever. And there's a constant stream of birds sipping nectar at her feeder. But she also noticed that it's quite a dogfight. One lands only to be chased away by another. She can't tell if there's just one bully or several of them, but they all seem to be in a frenzy to get what they need. They each go about their lives in a different way, but they all need the same thing. She says, I guess I could understand if the nectar was scarce, but it's not. I'm always out there refilling the feeder promptly. She said, I watch them. I'm always rooting for the vulnerable ones, wanting to tell them to not be so reactive and desperate. The other morning, she writes, while my tea brewed, I watched yet another petty tyrant, convinced of scarcity without any evidence, drive away one of its brethren, whose only offense was wanting to survive. She said, I found myself saying out loud, in spite of myself, you don't need to do this. There is enough. There will always be enough. What you need is right here, and the source will never run dry. I won't let it. But they didn't understand, for they could not hear. Friends, in, God, in God's economy, there is enough. Thanks be to God. Amen.